Section 22 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen. Third part of Chapter 9. THE CONSERVATION OF ARCHAIC TRAITS. In further qualification, it is to be noted that the leisure class of today is recruited from those who have been successful in a pecuniary way, and who therefore are presumably endowed with more than an even complement of the predatory traits. Entrance into the leisure class lies through the pecuniary employments, and these employments, by selection and adaptation, act to admit to the upper levels only those lines of descent that are pecuniarily fit to survive under the predatory test, and so soon as a case of reversion to non-predatory human nature shows itself on these upper levels, it is commonly weeded out and thrown back to the lower pecuniary levels. In order to hold its place in the class, a stock must have the pecuniary temperament. Otherwise, its fortune would be dissipated, and it would presently lose caste. Instances of this kind are sufficiently frequent. The constituency of the leisure class is kept up by a continual selective process, whereby the individuals and lines of descent that are eminently fitted for an aggressive, pecuniary competition are withdrawn from the lower classes. In order to reach the upper levels, the aspirant must have not only a fair average complement of the pecuniary aptitudes, but he must have these gifts in such an eminent degree as to overcome very material difficulties that stand in the way of his ascent. Barring accidents, the nouveau arrivé are a picked body. This process of selective admission has, of course, always been going on, ever since the fashion of pecuniary emulation set in, which is much the same as saying ever since the institution of a leisure class was first installed. But the precise ground of selection has not always been the same, and the selective process has therefore not always given the same results. In the early barbarian or predatory stage proper, the test of fitness was prowess in the naive sense of the word. To gain entrance to the class, the candidate had to be gifted with clannishness, massiveness, ferocity, unscrupulousness, and tenacity of purpose. These were the qualities that counted toward the accumulation and continued tenure of wealth. The economic basis of the leisure class, then as later, was the possession of wealth. But the methods of accumulating wealth and the gifts required for holding it 
have changed in some degree since the early days of the predatory culture. In consequence of the selective process, the dominant traits of the early barbarian leisure class were bold aggression, an alert sense of status, and a free resort to fraud. The members of the class held their place by tenure of prowess. In the later barbarian culture, society attained settled methods of acquisition and possession under the quasi-peaceable regime of status. Simple aggression and unrestrained violence, in great measure, gave place to shrewd practice and chicanery as the best approved method of accumulating wealth. A different range of aptitudes and propensities would then be conserved in the leisure class. Masterful aggression and the correlative massiveness, together with a ruthlessly consistent sense of status, would still count among the most splendid traits of the class. These have remained in our traditions as the typical aristocratic virtues. But with these were associated an increasing complement of the less obtrusive pecuniary virtues, such as providence, prudence, and chicanery. As time has gone on, and the modern peaceable stage of pecuniary culture has been approached, the last-named range of aptitudes and habits has gained in relative effectiveness for pecuniary ends, and they have counted for relatively more in the selective process under which admission is gained, and place is held in the leisure class. The ground of selection has changed, until the aptitudes which now qualify for admission to the class are the pecuniary aptitudes only. What remains of the predatory barbarian traits is the tenacity of purpose or consistency of aim which distinguish the successful predatory barbarian from the peaceable savage whom he supplanted. But this trait cannot be said characteristically to distinguish the pecuniarily successful upper-class man from the rank and file of the industrial classes. The training and the selection to which the latter are exposed in modern industrial life give a similarly decisive weight to this trait. Tenacity of purpose may rather be said to distinguish both these classes from two others, the shiftless ne'er-do-well and the lower-class delinquent. In point of natural endowment, the pecuniary man compares with the delinquent in much the same way as the industrial man compares with the good-natured, shiftless dependent. The ideal pecuniary man is like the ideal delinquent in his unscrupulous conversion of goods and persons to his own ends, and in a callous disregard of the feelings and wishes of others, and of the remoter effects of his actions. But he is unlike him in possessing a keener sense of status, and in working more consistently and far-sightedly to a remoter end. 
The kinship of the two types of temperament is further shown in a proclivity to sport and gambling and a relish of aimless emulation. The ideal pecuniary man also shows a curious kinship with the delinquent in one of the concomitant variations of the predatory human nature. The delinquent is very commonly of a superstitious habit of mind. He is a great believer in luck, spells, divination, and destiny, and in omens and shamanistic ceremony. Where circumstances are favorable, this proclivity is apt to express itself in a certain servile devotional fervor and a punctilious attention to devout observances. It may perhaps be better characterized as devoutness than as religion. At this point, the temperament of the delinquent has more in common with the pecuniary and leisure classes than with the industrial man or with the class of shiftless dependents. Life in a modern industrial community, or in other words, life under the pecuniary culture, acts by a process of selection to develop and conserve a certain range of aptitudes and propensities. The present tendency of this selective process is not simply a reversion to a given immutable ethnic type. It tends, rather, to a modification of human nature differing in some respects from any of the types or variants transmitted out of the past. The objective point of the evolution is not a single one. The temperament which the evolution acts to establish as normal differs from any one of the archaic variants of human nature in its greater stability of aim, greater singleness of purpose, and greater persistence in effort. So far as concerns economic theory, the objective point of the selective process is on the whole single to this extent. Although there are minor tendencies of considerable importance diverging from this line of development. But apart from this general trend, the line of development is not single. As concerns economic theory, the development, in other respects, runs on two divergent lines. So far as regards the selective conservation of capacities or aptitudes in individuals, these two lines may be called the pecuniary and the industrial. As regards the conservation of propensities, spiritual attitude or animus, the two may be called the invidious or self-regarding and the non-invidious or economical. As regards the intellectual or cognitive bent of the two directions of growth, the former may be characterized as the personal standpoint of conation, qualitative relation, status, or worth, the latter as the impersonal standpoint of sequence, quantitative relation, mechanical efficiency, or use. The 
pecuniary employments call into action chiefly the former of these two ranges of aptitudes and propensities, and act selectively to conserve them in the population. The industrial employments, on the other hand, chiefly exercise the latter range, and act to conserve them. An exhaustive psychological analysis will show that each of these two ranges of aptitudes and propensities is but the multiform expression of a given temperamental bent. By force of the unity or singleness of the individuals, the aptitudes, animus, and interest comprised in the first-named range belong together as expressions of a given variant of human nature. The like is true of the latter range. The two may be conceived as alternative directions of human life, in such a way that a given individual inclines more or less consistently to the one or the other. The tendency of the pecuniary life is, in a general way, to conserve the barbarian temperament, but with the substitution of fraud and prudence, or administrative ability, in place of that predilection for physical damage that characterizes the early barbarian. This substitution of chicanery in place of devastation takes place only in an uncertain degree. Within the pecuniary employments, the selective action runs pretty consistently in this direction, but the discipline of pecuniary life outside the competition for gain does not work consistently to the same effect. The discipline of modern life in the consumption of time and goods does not act unequivocally to eliminate the aristocratic virtues or to foster the bourgeois virtues. The conventional scheme of decent living calls for a considerable exercise of the earlier barbarian traits. Some details of this traditional scheme of life bearing on this point have been noticed in earlier chapters under the head of leisure, and further details will be shown in later chapters. From what has been said, it appears that the leisure class life and the leisure class scheme of life should further the conservation of the barbarian temperament, chiefly of the quasi-peaceable or bourgeois variant, but also in some measure, of the predatory variant. In the absence of disturbing factors, therefore, it should be possible to trace a difference of temperament between the classes of society. The aristocratic and the bourgeois virtues, that is to say the destructive and pecuniary traits, should be found chiefly among the upper classes, and the industrial virtues, that is to say, the peaceable traits, chiefly among the classes given to mechanical industry. In a general and uncertain way, this holds true. But the test is not so readily applied, nor so conclusive as might be wished. There are several assignable reasons for its partial failure. All classes are, in a measure, engaged in the pecuniary struggle 
and in all classes the possession of the pecuniary traits counts towards the success and survival of the individual. Wherever the pecuniary culture prevails, the selective process by which men's habits of thought are shaped, and by which the survival of rival lines of descent is decided, proceeds proximately on the basis of fitness for acquisition. Consequently, if it were not for the fact that pecuniary efficiency is on the whole incompatible with industrial efficiency, the selective action of all occupations would tend to the unmitigated dominance of the pecuniary temperament. The result would be the installation of what has been known as the economic man, as the normal and definitive type of human nature. But the economic man, whose only interest is the self-regarding one, and whose only human trait is prudence, is useless for the purpose of modern industry. The modern industry requires an impersonal, non-invidious interest in the work in hand. Without this, the elaborate processes of industry would be impossible, and would indeed never have been conceived. This interest in work differentiates the workman from the criminal, on the one hand, and from the captain of industry on the other, since work must be done in order to the continued life of the community, there results a qualified selection, favoring the spiritual aptitude for work within a certain range of occupations. This much, however, is to be conceded, that even within the industrial occupations, the selective elimination of the pecuniary trait is an uncertain process, and that there is consequently an appreciable survival of the barbarian temperament, even within these occupations. On this account, there is at present no broad distinction in this respect between the leisure class character and the character of the common run of the population. The whole question as to a class distinction in respect to spiritual makeup is also obscured by the presence in all classes of society of acquired habits of life that closely simulate inherited traits and at the same time act to develop in the entire body of the population the traits which they simulate. These acquired habits or assumed traits of character, are, most commonly, of an aristocratic caste. The prescriptive position of the leisure class as the exemplar of reputability has imposed many features of the leisure class theory of life upon the lower classes, with the result that there goes on, always and throughout society, a more or less persistent cultivation of these aristocratic traits. On this ground, also, these traits have a better chance of survival among the body of the people than would be the case if it were not for the precept and example of the leisure class. As one channel, and an important one, 
through which this transfusion of aristocratic views of life, and consequently more or less archaic traits of character goes on, may be mentioned the class of domestic servants. These have their notions of what is good and beautiful, shaped by contact with the master class, and carry the preconceptions so acquired back among their low-born equals, and so disseminate the higher ideals abroad through their community, without the loss of time which this dissemination might otherwise suffer. The saying, like master, like man, has a greater significance than is commonly appreciated for the rapid, popular acceptance of many elements of upper-class culture. There is also a range of facts that go to lessen class differences as regards the survival of the pecuniary virtues. The pecuniary struggle produces an underfed class of large proportions. This underfeeding consists in a deficiency of the necessaries of life or of the necessaries of a decent expenditure. In either case, the result is a closely enforced struggle for the means with which to meet the daily needs, whether it be the physical or the higher needs. The strain of self-assertion against odds takes up the whole energy of the individual. He bends his efforts to compass his own invidious ends alone, and becomes continually more narrowly self-seeking. The industrial traits, in this way, tend to obsolescence through disuse. Indirectly, therefore, by imposing a scheme of pecuniary decency, and by withdrawing as much as may be of the means of life from the lower classes, the institution of a leisure class acts to conserve the pecuniary traits in the body of the population. The result is an assimilation of the lower classes to the type of human nature that belongs primarily to the upper classes only. It appears, therefore, that there is no wide difference in temperament between the upper and the lower classes, but it appears also that the absence of such a difference is in good part due to the prescriptive example of the leisure class and to the popular acceptance of those broad principles of conspicuous waste and pecuniary emulation on which the institution of a leisure class rests. The institution acts to lower the industrial efficiency of the community and retard the adaptation of human nature to the exigencies of modern industrial life. It affects the prevalent or effective human nature in a conservative direction. One, by direct transmission of archaic traits through inheritance within the class and wherever the leisure class blood is transfused outside the class, and two, by conserving and fortifying the traditions of the archaic regime, and so making the chances of survival of barbarian traits 
greater also outside the range of transfusion of leisure class blood. But little, if anything, has been done towards collecting or digesting data that are of special significance for the question of survival or elimination of traits in the modern populations. Little of a tangible character can therefore be offered in support of the view here taken, beyond a discursive review of such everyday facts as lie ready to hand. Such a recital can scarcely avoid being commonplace and tedious, but for all that it seems necessary to the completeness of the argument, even in the meager outline in which it is here attempted. A degree of indulgence may therefore fairly be bespoken for the succeeding chapters, which offer a fragmentary recital of this kind. End of chapter 9 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox.